Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Ellen Roseman. Ellen was a longtime personal finance and consumer affairs columnist at the Toronto Star, who today continues as a financial literacy guru and consumer advocate with a crystal clear mandate to demystify money and right wrongs for everyday Canadians. Her brand has always been about delivering straight talk, so I'm pleased to have her on the podcast to share the stories behind her life and her career. Welcome, Ellen, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? I am at home. I, I call myself happily semi-retired. Yes. So I never gave it up completely. I'm like a freelance journalist. I look for opportunities to get involved. Quite a busy life. That's always the problem when you're freelancing. It's either too much or not enough, and it's hard to smooth it all out. But yeah. I really love it because don't have a summer home, don't have a winter home, spend the time at home. And I see so much going on that I want to get involved with talking about it or helping people get through it. And Toronto Star readers keep tracking me down and they'll say things like, oh, you helped me then and you helped me this. And I don't remember a lot of it, but uh, I know they do. And sometimes they want a copy of the article. And unfortunately, a lot of articles just disappear, right? Even yeah. off the internet, you think they're there forever. But uh, as I, I, w I spent 20 years at the Star and I notice a lot of articles just are missing and it doesn't even seem to be chronologically. It just, I, at some point, I guess they just decided to winnow down the number. Uh, and may I ask you, what part of town do you live in and have you always been there? Yeah, I'm originally a Montrealer, went to McGill University and then I moved to Toronto to get a master's degree in philosophy at University of Toronto. And I lived right around Bloor and St. George, which is perfect area. I, I rented a room and then over the years that I've been here, we moved around, but very much central city, walkable to, you know, Bloor and Young or Yorkville. And that's where we are now. We're kind of like uh, Summerhill area. So just down the hill from Avenue Road in St. Clair near the railroad tracks. And uh, it's a lovely area, quite expensive. We've lived in this house for 36 years. So we got it at, uh, you know, what sounds like an incredible bargain in 1986. <laughs> $256,000. Wow, that is a deal. But but Ellen, at the time, I bet you you were like, we, have we overextended ourselves? Are we crazy to pay this much for a house? Yeah, we, uh, we, uh, this was actually the second house. The first one we bought around the Casa Loma, you know, the Tarragon Theater, that area, a little street. And it was the middle of five townhouses joined together and it was 11 feet wide. So we had one child and then I was pregnant with the second and... We didn't have room. We just didn't have room. So we bought the house kind of late in the pregnancy, moved in, and two days later, the baby was born. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Uh, more excitement than you needed at the time. Yeah. I would like to ask about your family. I understand you have some recent good news to report. Yeah, the baby who came uh, a little early. Uh, <laughs> he's now 36. So 36 li years living in the house, 36-year-old young younger son. He and his... A uh, longtime partner decided to get married and do a destination wedding in Cancun, Mexico. Lucky and, you. Yeah. So it was January 30th. It was a beautiful resort they picked. Beautiful weather. We got fabulous pictures. They planned it all themselves, which is a big difference. When I got married, I was 26. My husband was 26. My mother was in Montreal. So she did all the planning. We came in and it was like we were guests at the wedding because we didn't know anything that was going on. But these two did such a great job planning it and 
most destination weddings are like 25, 30 people. They had 135. Wow. Yeah, a lot of them are her family. She's from the Philippines. They're living in Canada and the U.S. And they're very, very family-oriented and love big parties. So they came from all over the place. Uh, we had about 20 in our family group and some friends. But, you know, with COVID, people are still a little nervous about going. And justly so, because some of us did get COVID after, including oh no, oh, <laughs> including no. my husband and me, including the bride's mother and her partner, uh, but these days, it's more like a cold. You know, it's not a horrible event. So we had to get it at some point. We all will. Yeah, it, it will get all of us eventually. It's nice that you were able to get away and have such a great experience. So congratulations. It was. You have already mentioned it, but you started out in Montreal. Talk about your siblings, your parents. What was your life like in Montreal before you made the move to Toronto? My parents uh, decided to move to what was then a new suburb, town of Mount Royal, and it was connected to the downtown by uh, a train that would go right through the mountain. So we could get from the train station in town of Mount Royal to uh, the Queen Elizabeth Hotel in 10 minutes. It was amazing. 10 minutes, that's all it took. Whereas if you were driving or getting a bus, it would be like half an hour. Uh, so that's how I spent my McGill years, going on that train. And we used to have two newspapers at that point. We had the Montreal Star and the Montreal Gazette. And I read the star, we tended to be more star people, and the Gazette was like the weaker partner. And then at one point, the star people went on strike, and the newspaper went under. It just wasn't able to cope with the strike. The Gazette was left. And I used to say, that the Gazette is the one that you can fully read on your 10-minute drive on the train <laughs> downtown. <laughs> and uh, But it was, it, it was fun going to McGill, but at the end of it all, I really felt like I had to strike out on my own. So I came to um, Toronto and loved it here. Yeah, I had three siblings, uh, one of whom still in Montreal, one who lives in uh, Stouffville, uh, not too far from here, and one in Vancouver. And right. uh, yeah, they're, and they all came for the wedding. So it was really nice to see them all <laughs> after all that time apart. Great way to reconnect after all that time. And when you were at McGill, Ellen, this is when you first got involved with the school newspaper. Yes, I went to McGill because it just seemed like all three of us, the oldest three of us went to McGill and the younger one finally said, I want something different. So he went to Western <laughs> and we all lived at home. And a lot of my high school friends went with me to uh, McGill. But after the first year, my closest friends either didn't do very well and dropped out or moved somewhere else. And I was alone and I had to start figuring out what I was going to do to make friends. In my first year, all I did was take classes in the morning, rush home, make myself lunch and watch TV all afternoon. It was like liberation, right? No more high school. But then in the second year, I thought, I'm going to join a bunch of things. So I joined everything. I joined a sorority, putting together a handbook for new McGill students. And the McGill Daily was right in the basement of the student union, which everybody would go to get their coffee and hang out. And one day I walked in there and I said, so what's this all about? And they started telling me and I said, but I don't like writing. I hated doing composition in high school. I uh, On my matric exam, the matriculation, you had to do a composition and they'd give you a bunch of uh, topics, none of which made any sense to me. And you would write it in rough on one side and then you'd write it in good on the other side of the notebook. And I never even got, I never wrote anything. I just blanked right out. So I said, can I work on this newspaper without writing? So they said, sure, here's our library. Here's our archives. You can do, you know, clerical stuff. So I did that for a little while and I was enjoying it because the people who worked there were really a lot of fun. 
And then one day they said, oh, there's something happening and there's no one around to do it. Can you do it? I said, well, I don't know how to do it. They said, well, when you come back, write a whole bunch of notes. And when you come back, take out one of these archives of old papers and just copy the style. So I did it. I tried. And I remember even after that first article where I was just fumbling around, it felt great. It really felt good mm. because I think why I hated composition was that they were stupid topics that didn't make much sense to me. But when you were trying to take real life and put it on paper, it's kind of like photography, right? You're trying to see how realistic you are in conveying what happened. It made sense to me and it made me want to be better at it. And so from second year until fourth year, because it was a four-year degree, I spent way more time in the McGill Daily office than at home. My mother would say that classic line, you treat us like we're a hotel. (laughs) (laughs) But even on Sundays, I would go because there was a Monday paper. It was five days a week. So I'd spend all day Sunday there and I'd stay there until 11 o'clock when they were sending the copy to the printer in Saint Laurent. And I would hitch a ride on the taxi and then get home from there. So it was just all consuming and it was really fun. And then... After I got my uh, MA in philosophy, it was a one-year degree at U of T. I thought, what am I going to do next? Didn't think of journalism. I always thought I was too shy. And then I discovered that all kinds of people who go into journalism are shy, and they're testing their ability to uh, rise to the occasion, and usually you can can manage. So, But I, I hadn't made that decision yet. I really thought, I love reading, and I love libraries, and I love books, so I'll try my hand at publishing. And I got uh, information about, I don't know, 15 different publishers in Canada, sent out resumes and got, I think, one interview. And they said, publishing isn't really that much fun. You'll find that a lot of what you're doing is just doing the index at the back of the book. Hmm. And that's pretty tedious. And you have a master's degree. I don't think you should do it. So that's as far as that got. And then a friend of my parents was an advertising guy, and he had an inn at McLean Hunter, you know, the big building at 481 University at uh, Dundas, and they put out the uh, McLean's, uh, Chatelaine, Financial Post, and a whole bunch of trade magazines. So he got me an interview there, and I had to do a bunch of tests, and I got hired to work on the business magazines, and I was thinking, wouldn't it be fun to work on heavy construction news or bus and truck Apparently, Arthur Haley, a famous Canadian novelist, got his start working there. But it was immediately, this was like late uh, 60s, 69. They said, well, women can't work there and women can't work there. And my only choices seemed to be uh, women's fashion. I tried to be on the men's fashion one and they said no. And groceries and furniture. And that was about it. So I ended up on style which was like women's wear daily. It was every two weeks and it was a newspaper, tabloid newspaper format. And the fun part was we still had a printing plant up at Young and uh, the 401. And I would go to the printing plant every two weeks and, you know, help put it out. And it was really a great assignment. And from there, I went to the Financial Post and started writing about retailing as a, a business reporter. And then I got to work at the Star. When I first went there, they said, but you've never worked for a newspaper. And I left them my scrapbooks full of all kinds of business articles that I'd done. And a couple of days later, they they found a job for me. So I was at the Star just for a year and a half. And then I went to the Globe and Mail for 20 years, 21 years. And then I went back to the Star and I was almost 20 years there. Uh, I was, I think it was 16 before I got the buyout offer because they were busy trying to 
cut down the staff. This was the age of uh, attrition, which is still going on. And then I freelanced uh, a weekly column for them for uh, three and a half years until mid-2019. And since then, no more weekly deadlines for me. (laughs) Well, that's an amazing story because you started from wanting to work in a newspaper without writing. (laughs) And then (laughs) the light bulb went off. You went through this great career, Ellen, as you note. You went from covering women's wear at Style Magazine to winning two Kenneth R. Wilson Awards for business writing. So you made this amazing transition. As you say, star and then to the Globe for 20 years. When I went to the Globe, I was hired to do consumer reporting, which I had been doing at the Star. And the interesting thing was that there was a guy that I'd met from meetings of the Consumers Association, which then was a big deal. And he was at the... um, the star. And when I got my job at the star, they were filling the opening that he left because he went to the Globe and Mail. Mm. So uh, I was at the star for a year and a half. And then I learned that he had left the Globe and Mail. And the reason was that he was really good at real estate and he'd bought a whole bunch of um, rooming houses in the annex and he was ready to retire. He was only in his 40s, I think. But uh, so I went to the Globe and I filled the opening there again. And I did this for about 10 years. The consumer movement was really strong. You had consumer ministers federally, consumer ministers provincially. That's all gone now. You had this giant consumers association all across Canada taking up a lot of issues uh, and making them big. The only constant that's still here and is still terrific is Marketplace on CBC. They just had their 50th anniversary season opening, and I was sitting in the audience, and it was so much fun to look back on what they were doing. And they had the best method of exposing consumer deception and fraud, which was hidden cameras. That, as a newspaper reporter, is pretty hard to do. They don't really yeah. want you to take a hidden microphone or anything unless you can justify it as being at the you know, utmost importance, whereas Marketplace does it all the time, and it's still a terrific show. Uh, so... After 10 years, I could see that the consumer movement was winding down. A lot of these uh, middle-class kind of full-time housewives who were so good at advocating for the consumer, uh, they were getting older and the newer generation of women was in the workplace and didn't have the time to be volunteers. So I went to the editor of the business section and I said, okay, I'd like to maybe try my hand at working in the business section, not knowing a heck of a lot. And they put me on the mutual fund beat And what did I know about mutual funds? I think I'd written one story once. But as I got into it and got heavier into it, I realized that it was just like any other story of consumers having no real credibility when it came to the industry. In fact, the mutual fund manufacturers saw their clients as the mutual fund sellers who were like uh, dealers and brokers. And so they'd have these giant uh, kind of events where the uh, sellers would eat and drink a heck of a lot and then get a little bit of a, you know, kind of a quick run through of some of the new products. And then they would show pictures of their last uh, convention in Jamaica or uh, Mexico and how they were playing volleyball and playing golf. And it just was like a really cozy industry. And somebody I knew got me a ticket to go there just to see what it was like. And then I figured once I was there, I could approach one or two of the executives and introduce myself. And they immediately kind of said, oh, no, 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 you shouldn't be here and we can't talk to you. You're, mm. you know, we're not really, we don't even talk to our customers, you know, so it's no point in talking to us. And that all changed over the years. There was a wonderful consumer advocate who came, who was a, a securities lawyer, Gloria Ann Stromberg. 
And the federal government commissioned her to do a, a report on what's wrong with mutual funds because after the um, interest rates fell and Canadians realized that they couldn't, you know, retire just on GICs once they were getting down to, you know, four or five percent interest, everybody started putting their money into mutual funds, which, as I was saying, was not at all consumer friendly, didn't really care about the customer, very high costs. We're still dealing with that and still a lot of people do have money in mutual funds, but there's a lot more information out now about alternatives, low-cost alternatives. And that's a revolution that I've really enjoyed watching take place. Uh, so she put out the report for the federal government, which was quite radical and eye-opening. Not much happened. Or maybe it was the other way around. Maybe she did it first for the Ontario Securities Commission and then for the government. So she did two different reports, still stand up today. A lot of it hasn't been enacted, but at least showed the direction that we should be moving. And so I stayed with the report on business for another 10 years. And that's where I became an editor. I was like the editor of the money pages. And uh, it was it was a lot of fun to do. And we did monthly mutual fund sections, which then died at the Star and the Globe because the industry wasn't supporting them anymore with advertising. And one of the best things I did was just before I left, we had an opening for a reporter. And I hired Rob Carrick, who's now mm. the money guy at the uh, Globe and Mail. He's been there for... 20 years, I'd say maybe a little bit more than that. And he'd been at Canadian Press and uh, he has a really strong commitment to this and works really, really hard. So I, I keep reading him and thinking, thank God you're there, Rob, and you're really telling it like it is. Yeah, well, it's, it's quite obvious, Alan, the intersection now between kind of financial literacy and consumer advocacy. And I guess as, as you continue to get deeper into it, you must have seen so many instances where these two kind of spheres uh, collided, so to speak. Yeah. After the 2008 financial uh, collapse, crash, I guess you'd say market crash in the US and around the world, the federal government decided to set up a task force on financial literacy to see what we could be doing to make it better. And as the head of it, they picked Don Stewart, who was the CEO at Sun Life. And at that time, I thought, how could they pick someone in the life insurance field? Because life insurance is all about contracts. And when you read the contract for a policy that you buy, it tends to run to 100 pages, more than 100 pages. Right now, travel insurance is a big deal. I was just on LinkedIn where someone talked about how he was on a trip, sleepwalked off a balcony that was six meters high and broke his back. And he had he was taken to the hospital and he had to get a hold of his travel insurance company. And all it ever was was an hour on the phone with music and then maybe get through to somebody, maybe not, maybe get disconnected. And he was worried about having to plug in his phone because he was losing his battery and just went on and on about how hard it was for him to get any answers because of this terrible customer service. Now, I know there's more traveling going on and probably there's more people calling their travel insurers. But still, there should be a way to triage, just like in a hospital, so this guy with his broken back who was in terrible pain could at least get through quicker than someone else who just had a question or a complaint that wasn't worth very much. So I was surprised that they picked a life insurance guy, but he turned out to be a wonderful chair. He was very empathetic. He was very smart. They put out an excellent report or several reports. And then some things came out of it. There's this new agency called the Financial Consumer Agency of Canada, new then, I guess. 15 years old now. But what they've done is taken all the information that you can you need about money that the federal government has access to and put it on Canada.ca, which is the main government website. 
But if you do Canada, uh, Canada.ca slash money, you get a lot, a lot of information. And some of which I was lucky enough to help with, which was a, a course called Financial Basics aimed at young people, uh, say 20 to 35. And it it's in the form of a manual that others can use to hold these seminars. We have eight different videos, including one on how to hold a financial basic seminar. And it, it's, it's quite popular, though probably needs a bit of updating, but still, I'm very proud of it. And it was supported by the Ontario Securities Commission and the Financial Consumer Agency of Canada. So it is, it's good to watch. Well, education is a huge thing for you. You've been teaching courses and investing in personal finance at the University of Toronto's School of Continuing Studies since, I believe, 2004. For example, how to invest for beginners, how to become a smart consumer. Does this mean we have to call you Professor Ellen? <laughs> Some people do, but I guess theoretically I'm an instructor. I'm not in the business section at the, at the school. I'm in the arts and sciences. That's and interesting. The part that I'm in is called life and leisure. And the, it's interesting because the smart consumer, I tried it twice. It was in the spring, mind you, where people don't really want to sit in a classroom once the weather gets good. We never got enough people to enroll. I think sometimes we only got one or two people. Whereas investing for beginners, which I've been doing for like 15 years now, that one always gets lots of people because many of us think that we're already smart consumers. You know, like we don't learn in school, but over a lifetime, we pick up a lot of tricks. Whereas investing to many people is just scary, intimidating. You feel like you're never going to get anywhere. The experts have all the uh, cards and you have no cards. So that at least they want to take a course and learn. And in the, in the time that I've been doing it, the beginner has so many more options to the point where, you know, even though they're great options, it takes a while to explain them all. And sometimes when there's too many choices, people get paralyzed. That's the stage that we're at now. Like, how does this relate to other things? And by the time you explain it all, and even though I try to do it in plain language, there is a lot of industry talk that gets mixed in because otherwise you can't find it unless you put some of that stuff in if you're doing a search online. I'm guessing what you really love about it is it's not one way. You're getting feedback from your students as opposed to you just delivering a lecture to a fixed audience. Uh, I guess getting that circle of feedback must be great for you because you, you get this sense of, as you say, uh, analysis paralysis and there's too much or, or what are the topics today's people want to learn when they talk about investing. So that feedback must be great. Yeah. At the beginning, I was doing uh, the investing in two parts, four sessions at a time. So that was eight hours and then a more advanced one for another eight hours. And then people started saying, that's not enough. And I'd like to get going, but I feel really nervous doing it on my own. So we set up an investing club. And that club's been going on for 15 years. We used to meet in person at Miles Nadal JCC right at a subway stop. And then when COVID started, we started going online and we're still doing it online now on Zoom. And we have on our mailing list about 150 people. For meetings, we tend to get somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 40. And we have a very active email list as well. So it feels like we're continuing the course. Uh, and some people are, you know, more experienced, some are less. So they're all helping each other. And uh, it's been fun to learn how to do that too, to keep it going online. Another project that you've been sinking your teeth into, the Money Saver podcast for Canadian Money Saver magazine. How do you like podcasting? Very much. It, it is different. 
The Money Saver magazine has been around forever. Uh, I interviewed the original owners of it who started it. They were two school teachers who wanted to move out of the city and uh, they were in the area of Harrowsmith. Remember that magazine, Harrowsmith? Mm -hmm. So that's where they were living. And they figured they, this magazine they could do on their own. And they got it going. I think they ran it for about 10 years and then they'd had enough. And Peter Hodson, who was a high-level money manager working in Ottawa at a company called Sprott Securities, he decided that he didn't like the industry. He didn't like the conflicts of interest. He didn't think that, you know, it was fair. And he wanted a, a, a change in lifestyle. He was more like in his late 40s, early 50s. And he moved to Kitchener-Waterloo, bought the magazine, set it up there, and hired Lana Sanichar, who is now the editor-in-chief, and she's my partner in the podcast. And at the same time, he decided to set up an investment firm called Five Eye Research, and the idea was, I can't remember what the five eyes are, but certainly one was independence, meaning that they never got any money from any stock issuer to do research on the companies. So they're independent, they have integrity, and they sell their service, which involves, you know, regular bulletins on what to buy and how to buy and so on, and uh, a, a great archive of questions and answers that you can consult at any time. They sell it for anywhere from $100 a year, maybe $150 a year. And he uh, and his staff are really good. And so I'm really glad to be associated with them. And the podcast we've been doing for about four years, maybe up to five years. And uh, we're just trying to interview people who have something to talk to our audience about, you know, how to manage your money better, how to deal with difficult decisions. Uh, some of them are authors. Uh, we, we try and get them to give advice. And it's been a lot of fun. We, we put out maybe about eight or 10 podcasts a year. So certainly not as many as you do, Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, as, as I found, it's just another great way to reach an audience and a different audience. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview with Ellen Roseman, please check out the more than 100 additional episodes available anytime. We got other business experts, including CIBC's Jamie Golenbeck, entrepreneurs Mark Cohan and David Cinnamon, and sports executives Joe Jackman and Bob Nicholson. So many great behind-the-scenes stories directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7-365 wherever you get your podcasts. When you talk about financial literacy and investing and building wealth, the king is perhaps David Chilton. When the wealthy barber, David Chilton, needs advice, he goes to Ellen Roseman. <laughs> when, when David Chilton was first pitching his book 25 years ago, he apparently went to you for feedback on a book that eventually sold 2 million copies in Canada, another million in the U.S., which these are crazy numbers. May I ask about your relationship with David Chilton? Why did he come to you? Why did he ask for your feedback? Well, his book was published in 89, and I moved into the report on business at the Globe in 87, fall of 87. And there was a giant crash there as well, but it wasn't really an economic crash. It was more like a, a computer crash and people lost some money. And I was just learning things. And when he came, I think he'd read some of my articles and he thought, well, here's somebody who's writing, you know, with a consumer in mind and just look me up. And he came into the office and he gave me a few chapters typed out, I guess. We didn't have computers then. And he said, could you read my first couple of chapters and tell me what you think? And he was very pleasant. I read the chapters. 
and didn't tell me anything about the book other than that, you know, he was hoping to make personal finance easier for the average person. And the first couple of chapters were all about, you know, the the friends uh, schmoozing with the barber and talking about the Detroit Lions or whoever the Detroit team was and baseball. And there was no personal finance. He never gave me any of that. So afterward, when he came back and asked, I said, you know, like, what was the big ad then? Wendy's. Where's the beef? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, well, I'm getting to that. And I said, well, you didn't get to it yet, so I don't really know how to judge it. <laughs> and then the book came out, and it became so popular, and I realized that he really had a winning formula because he was just trying to make it easier for average people to say that they could read a personal finance book. So he wasn't getting to the beef quickly. He was <laughs> mixing it in very slowly along the way. And I did write something about it, and I, I think I, I did a generally appreciative article about it, but then I said... In terms of being a novelist, because he's telling the story in, in the form of a novel, I said he's no John le Carré. And he, sa- he said he didn't know who that was, so he had to ask a few people. <laughs> and, I, and later on, when I was at the Star, I did a piece too, and I said, in the early days of Trivial Pursuit, the guy who invented it was friendly with a whole bunch of journalists, a lot of whom were Montreal Star people and some in Toronto, and he got them all to contribute money toward making this game a reality. And these were journalists who didn't have a whole lot of money, but they were rewarded like hundredfold with the success of Trivial Pursuit. So I was thinking, it's a good thing that David Chilton didn't ask me to contribute because I would have <laughs> cursed myself forever and ever that I hadn't uh, put some money into it. Uh, but then when his sequel came out, The Wealthy Barber Returns, he was asking a lot of people, and this is what he what he's so good at. He, I think he must have had 40 people read it through and give him their thoughts, you know, line by line kind of thing. So I was one of those people. And he had a chapter in there about journalists he liked. And I got a mention. And just recently, someone said, I'm writing to you because I saw your name in David Chilton's book. That's yeah. great. <laughs> and then I put out a book in 2013 called Fight Back, 81 Ways to Help You Save Money and Protect Yourself from Corporate Trickery. And I asked him to do a foreword. And he said he rarely ever does a foreword, but he did. And then the publisher took a sentence from that, put it on the cover next to these red boxing gloves because it was all about fight back. And it's been fun to follow him. Like when he was um, uh, publishing cookbooks by these two sisters, uh, Greta and uh, Janet uh, Podleski, Crazy Spoons and Crazy Plates, Looney Spoons and Crazy Plates. And then he decided to go into the frozen food business with um, Greta and Janet. And because none of them came from, you know, the grocery industry, it was really hard. They had frozen pizza, they had frozen other things, and they were getting it. It was difficult to get into the stores, and then they weren't selling that well. And then one day he came to me and he said, you know, we realized everything we did was wrong, so we're going to start over again and redo the business. And he gave me all the details about what they did wrong. Like, for example, instead of individual portions, they had bigger portions for three or four people, and those weren't selling so well. And it was just so great. And it's just that he talks very straightforwardly, doesn't lie. And now I see him, he's a spokesperson for RBC, estate planning. So, you know, the final stuff. And he was saying uh, in what I was looking at, never get your friends or your relatives to be your executor, which is the person that does all the paperwork after you're gone, because that's not a good idea. 
And I thought, there he is again, kind of upending our expectations of what he's going to say. And it's great to see Canada's biggest bank give him the opportunity to do that. As we know, he was also on Dragon's Den and did very well there and never um, put on a show as Kevin uh, O'Leary does. He was just himself and he said quite clearly what he thought would happen. And I think he, he, he did finance some really good businesses out of that. Yeah, he's really built a great brand for himself. And Ellen, I do have to ask, since you brought him up, you did an interview with Mr. Wonderful, Kevin <laughs> O'Leary. What was your what were your memories of that interaction? And what did you think of Kevin? Well, the uh, Indigo people, was it Indigo? No, Kobo. Kobo had a, a place in Liberty Village, and they had a theater, and they often would have a staff meeting where they'd bring celebrities in. So they asked me to interview him. And I'd never met him in person. I certainly had watched him on Dragon's Den. And I thought that he was one of the, you know, key factors why Dragon's Den's done so well, because he's just outspoken and uh, you never know what's going to come out of his mouth. So um, I met him in the green room beforehand and we had a talk. And I realized that he really, what you see on TV, Mr. Wonderful, is a persona. And he is very good at creating that persona. But in person, he was much quieter and very, very ambitious, and talked a lot about what he was hoping to do. For example, he wanted to do a book on the Dragon's Den and the concept and the show and everything else, and he said that they'd never given permission to anyone to do it, but because he was on it, he would do the book. I don't think he has done the book, but he's done other books about his family and so on. And I think the the book that we were talking about at the time was one about his family and talking about money in your family. So that's all good. But then when we got into the Q&A with the audience, someone said something about how her mother had had Alzheimer's and the daughter had been very good about taking care of her and she pretty well used up all her RSP because of all the expenses that arose as a result of that. And immediately, instead of Kevin saying, well, that's very nice, but he, he started yelling at her but this is your retirement money and uh, you should be saving for yourself. And how could you do that? That was a pretty dumb decision. And wow, you know, like the whole audience was quite, woo. <laughs> but that was his point of view. And I guess he just made it louder and more kind of uh, antagonistic just to show that he was willing to take a strong stand. Well, he's another guy, certainly. Uh, that brand is bigger than the person. So it's interesting that you say he was able to turn it on and off. Ellen, I want to ask you about fellow well-known Toronto consumer advocates, Sean O'Shea, Pat Foran, friends, enemies, or frenemies? <laughs> I'd say friends, in particular, Sean, because uh, uh, we've been uh, kind of together on various assignments or uh, stories over the years. And he's a bit like another uh, consumer advocate well-known on uh, City TV, Peter Silverman, who died a few years mm-hmm. ago, but Peter was always trying to get interviews with people and how hard it was. Peter is a big guy. Sean isn't quite as big, but Sean can be tough. And a lot of the fun is just watching them get pushed away and turned away and uh, yelled at by people who won't interview them. I remember Sean was after a guy who had started a fitness center right near another fitness center that he'd closed down and he was trying to pretend that this new fitness center wasn't the same thing. And after, you know, denying all the old members entrance to the new one and he was running after him running after him and then trying to get an interview and it's very entertaining and uh, he continues to do it on global pat foran is uh, i don't see him as much anymore uh, because i don't watch the dinner news and he's not on the late news 
he tends to use uh, consumer reports. They have an alliance with the magazine, so he gets a lot of videos from there and he puts stuff on it. And a lot of what he does is what I used to do, you know, ask people for their bad experiences and look into it and try and help them go to the companies, get the companies to agree that this wasn't the right way it was handled and to make things right. So I'm glad that he's there too. And yeah, there's there's still a lot of people doing it, but not as many as there could be. You know, sometimes when people approach me with their, their problems, I don't know where to send them because I don't see that much consumer journalism going on at the newspapers. And um, the other thing that I like is CBC Go Public. They use that as uh, a way to... Um, to do investigative journalism on behalf of both both consumers and financial issues. And Erica Johnson, who was the host of Marketplace, I think she was there the longest of any of their hosts. She now does CBC Go Public. So that's a great thing too. That's on the consumer advocacy side. When we talk about personal financial planning and wealth, Susie Orman is everywhere. She's, she is omnipresent. Huckster or the real deal? Uh, a little of both. <laughs> what I found was, this is about five years ago on Twitter. I, I like Twitter and I'm on there a lot. And she was going on and on about how if you just gave up your daily cup of coffee, you could retire a millionaire. That idea has been around forever and ever. Kevin O'Leary used it too in his book. And I think it's just so trite and silly and you know, you need a plan and just giving up coffee isn't going to get you anywhere. And so I wrote a negative tweet about it. And then all of a sudden I found I was blocked. And uh, so then I started writing, I've been blocked by Susie Orman. <laughs> <laughs> New claim to fame. Yeah. And as a result of that, I got interviewed on a podcast. It's a really good financial podcast in Canada called Ration The Rational Reminder. And it's by two guys who work for uh, a financial um, planning firm in Ottawa. And they, they were so excited. that. And then I discovered also that I'd been blocked by Dave Ramsey, who's another wow. big guru in the U.S. <laughs> yes. And I'm thinking, you know, are their egos so fragile that they can't stand a little, you know, criticism by somebody in Canada who doesn't have zillions of followers as they do? <laughs> what a rabble rouser you are, Ellen. Uh, it's been said that the golden rule of personal finance is don't spend more than you earn and focus on what you can keep. Now, this obviously sounds straightforward. What are the biggest financial mistakes, personal finance mistakes people are making these days? newest one, and it's so easy to get sucked into it, is subscriptions. Online, especially. Everybody is hoping to sell you a monthly subscription to their service or their product or their magazine or their whatever. And, you know, you have streaming services now and you tend to lose track of your subscriptions. So we all need to have uh, some kind of a, a, an app that will tell us, you know, when we signed on, when it's about to be over, and you have to know what the expiry date is because if you wait till the very end, they'll roll it over automatically. So you have to let them know like within a month or sometimes even just within a week whether you want to continue or not. And always keep track of these subscriptions because before you know it, you might have like 10 or 12 of them and they can really add up. And everybody's doing yeah. it. Like if you buy a computer and you want Microsoft, uh, whatever they call it now, Office or the, the suite of, of um, software, they're, they're selling you just uh, a month, an annual subscription, and you got to renew it every year. So it's very good for companies, not so good for the individual customer. The other things to look at, and we're probably all looking at now, is how much we spend on food, how much we spend on restaurants. It's, uh, inflation is coming down in terms of the annual rate, but on in terms of groceries, it's still going up. 
So we've got to be more careful in looking for bargains. I want to ask you about the big, big changes going on at the Toronto Star. They recently moved out of their longtime headquarters, 1 Young Street. Very public and messy divorce between these owner partners, Jordan Bidov and Paul Rivette. Does the Star have the innovation and the tools necessary to find a path to profitability, or are the days of the Star uh, not long? Well, naturally, having spent all those years there and not being around for the last few, I've been gobbling it all up, all the coverage. Yes. And I went to the public session that they had at the Isabel Bassett Building, Is- Isabel Bader Building at U of T, where Steve Pakin had done a documentary about the Toronto Star. It was for TVO. And it was about the star covering the uh, COVID. And we, we did get to see the two owners who I'd never seen before in, in action. And then afterward, they had a panel discussion. And Steve had a, a, a group of guests. And one of the tour star owners sat at next to Steve. And the other one sat next to three or four other people so that they weren't close to each other. And they were talking to each other. They were very courteous. But you could see there was you know some disagreement between them. And a week later, we found out through the papers that they had managed to resolve their differences and split things in half. I was impressed by Jordan Bitov because he seemed to me to have swallowed the spirit of John Hondrick in that attitude that he had, very optimistic, feeling really strongly that the star was a public trust. It had a huge following in the city, whether or not people read it, they were aware of it and aware of their journalism. And, you know, you just have to look at story of the murders of Honey and Barry Sherman. That is an unsolved mystery. It's been going on for four years, almost five years. After the beginning few months, nobody was covering it except Kevin Donovan at the start. And he's not letting go. He's continuing to work it, work it, work it. Now he's got a podcast and there's a competing podcast uh, as well uh, with somebody called Catherine Goldhar and Michelle Shepard, who was a Toronto Star reporter, is producing it. So you know, people in Toronto want to know what happened here, and there must be a way to resolve it eventually. And also the John Tory story, as we know, the star broke it. Not everybody in Toronto thought that the Toronto star was doing the right thing. But I listened to uh, Canada Land, Jesse Brown, and they talked about it. And the uh, David Ryder, who's a City Hall Bureau Chief, pointed out that they weren't even going to cover the story. They hadn't made up their mind yet when they wrote to John Tory's lawyer or John Tory's lawyer got back to them and confirmed it because I think once John Tory found out that the star was nosing around, he started getting advice from other people and they all said, you can't survive this. You have got to quit because it's just not your image and you'll be, you know, followed around forever and ever with these questions. So he decided to quit. So other media might have done it afterward, but the star did it first and it now we've got a whole new, you know, open field of possible contenders, but it was, I, I supported them uh, that, you know, some people were saying, well, why did he have to quit? Well, there are issues there. And I think that things unfolded as they should. And I was very proud of the star because the globe is doing a lot of investigative stuff, but it tends to be more in the business field where the star is doing it in all kinds of stories. Yeah. Well, they still, they still do break a lot of stories and bring a lot of things that otherwise would not get attention. So they're still relevant. Yeah. Let's see if they can make a business out of it, I yeah. guess. Yeah, just one thing. When you asked about profitability, very, very hard to make money in newspapers, in print. My younger son, the one who just got married, 
was an English major and then he went online and he became an online journalist and then he got his dream job at Now Magazine. He was the music editor and he did that for five years and just loved it. The owners of Now couldn't make a go of it and Alice Klein sold it to someone who was way out of his depth and he, he, he didn't do a good job at all. And then it was taken over by the board of the company and they stopped paying the staff and the staff were working there for a few months, not been getting paid, getting a whole lot of excuses. And then finally they're all gone and they ended up selling the online version of now to somebody who took it over without any promises to pay the staff. Mm. So it, it's, quite a scandal considering that now was like the Toronto Star part of the conscience of Toronto and covering a lot of the issues that the mainstream newspapers wouldn't run. So he's a freelance journalist now too, hoping that he can find something, but he might end up, as we like to say, on the dark side doing public relations and communications and that kind of thing. (laughs) Dark side. (laughs) Well, there's one thing that's always a certainty. There's always going to be changes in the marketplace, especially with everything digital. Ellen, I would be remiss if I did not take advantage of your expertise to selfishly close with uh, asking you about dealing with my daughter, my 16-year-old. She does not know what a bank is. She does not know what physical money is. She uses her phone to pay for everything. Uh, (laughs) Somewhat surprisingly, since shopping online is so prevalent, I am surprised she does know what the shopping mall is and times have not changed. 16-year-olds still love to go shopping and hang out at the mall. But Ellen, what do I tell my 16-year-old as she starts her kind of financial literacy journey and planning for herself? What's the most important thing I can pass on to her? To keep track of her money and figure out where it's going. You know, a lot of banks now give you ways to track your money. uh, They've picked up, you know, methods of showing. They put your money, uh, your spending into different categories and show you what's going on. And just to look at it. And I know a lot of parents say, as well as looking at how you spend your money, look at creating some savings, so making sure that you don't spend it all. And a third category is trying to do good with your money, put it back into the community in some way, through a charity, through a food bank, just making sure that the spending is and saving isn't all for you, but some of it goes back to help others who don't have the resources that you have. And I'm sure if you go to the library, uh, there's lots of books on teaching teens how to spend better. Yeah, I just reviewed a book by a guy who wrote uh, an investing for teens when he was a book about investing for teens when he was 17. (laughs) I think it's great. And I do think that the whole issue of literacy, getting into it as soon as you can, financial literacy certainly is helpful. Ellen, you talked about the teaching you're doing at University of Toronto School of Continuing Studies. You talked about your podcast. What else are you working on and where should we follow you? you? You did mention you're big on Twitter. Yes, uh, still there. Uh, I did get the request to, uh, I have one of those blue checks, check marks, which I guess is still, uh, I don't have to pay for it, but they said that some kind of security that went with it is no longer going to be available to me unless I pay a certain amount and I'm not going to do that. Through my website, through Twitter, through Instagram, though I use Instagram mostly for my pictures of Toronto, uh, Facebook, uh, I have a professional page on Facebook and I also have a personal page and uh, I love social media. My husband uh, feels like he's got to wade through all this stuff to get to me, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's fun to do. And if anybody wants to write to me and tell me about something that's going on, you just go to ellenroseman.com uh, and on the front of my 
website, there's a little box where you can write to me without having an email address. You can just do it through the website. Fabulous. So the lines of communication are still open. Reach Ellen through ellenroseman.com. I want to thank you for your time catching up with you, hearing the stories from your Montreal days till now. I guess I have to ask, Habs or Leafs? I'm not a hockey fan. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll let you My husband was a huge Habs fan, but he had a crush on P.K. Subban. And as soon as they <laughs> traded him, that was it for the Leaf, for the Habs. <laughs> okay, well, hey, that's everyone loves P.K. Yeah. So, well, certainly in this market, we're all hoping this is the year for us. Yeah. I want to wish you continued success with your teaching, with the podcast, and uh, thanks for your time today. Thanks, Andrew. It was a great fun talking to you. It was my pleasure. And to the listeners, we say thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. And on behalf of Ellen Roseman, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast. But we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com.